staff have been serving the Vancouver community since 1995. They offer all the services you'd expect from a commercial printing and sign shop combined with the personal attention to detail and the integrity of a local neighbor vendor. After all, great printing is strategy with creativity. ADCO Printing and Graphics, located at 353 Grand Boulevard in Vancouver. Find out more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. KXRW is brought to you by the generous support of Beacock Music. Beacock Music is your source for an extraordinary selection of products, experts, and a fun environment. Find out more at beacockmusic.com. Beacock Music. They love what they do, and they make music happen. X-Ray FM is supported by Slingshot Lounge. Located in southeast Portland on the corner of 56th and Foster, Slingshot Lounge offers an expansive game room, scratch cocktails, and a craft kitchen with a full menu until 2 a.m. Happy hour available weekdays from 3 to 7, and brunch weekends from noon to 4. Slingshot Lounge, decentralizing Portland since 2007. X-Ray. How I love my girl. with my head outside of the womb of my mother. His eyes went from almost jet black to like pure blue during the process. When the heart breaks, there's an opening. There's a great opening into a big, big space. It was maybe the first moment of clarity and honesty and the first real connection I'd ever had to the universe. We are all inherent pure enlightened consciousness and wisdom and compassion. We just are in different stages of unveiling. So that's what keeps us alive. We put our energies out there and we get blessed back. The Mirror Cave. The Mirror Cave, episode 22, Scattered Attention Spectrum. Stand-up comedian Christian Ricketts talks about getting started in comedy and Vipassana Buddhist meditation. Uh, some of the things that can happen while bombing is uh, your face can get really warm and you can start sweating really quick. And the name for that is flop sweat. Maybe you've heard of that. That's kind of an old term. Um, it will be something that maybe, like what I found is that I'm not quite sure how to tell a particular thing and I'm not really confident about this or that or I've been really distracted so I'll start to go into some kind of joke and you know why do people give themselves nicknames I mean I'm sorry if you guys have nicknames anyways you know what let me start over you know if I do something like that I'm uh, because all the confidence is gone you know like uh, the audience they smell fear they're gonna you know they're gonna eat you alive um, just with their facial expressions you know when you're bombing, um, what you really notice are the audience members' glum faces. 
like the human face when it doesn't have an expression on it it's just the jowls are just kind of hanging there and the dead eyes looking at you and then just kind of like then like the mouth might turn up a little bit if there is an expression kind of like a little bit of like a sour look guys will look actively surly arms folded I mean I've been on stage for like five ten minutes or so when it's just solid not caring there's there's like this sudden awareness okay I'm bombing there's no way I can get out of it and I probably have another five or ten minutes and then many times this has happened where I just robotically go through all the stuff that I have to go through that I remember and I will not even wait for a laugh I will just be like well I'm gonna just do all of it because I made a commitment with myself that I would do that and then I'm gonna leave and then I'm gonna try and forget about the whole thing it's uh it feels confrontational and very lonely when you're bombing in front of a bunch of people and then it you can't you get this sudden feeling that of like imprisonment and um also like like a floundering sort of panic because awareness is gone the comic who's bombing often is not is so far from being present and the fear of people not liking them you know, it's probably going to trigger a lot of other old fears of not being liked, which is probably why you did this thing in the first place. And now the nightmare is happening and all the faces are so glum and round and pumpkin-like. Uh, you're, um, you, 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 it's like a, it, it is like a living nightmare. Uh, go, going into going into you know your job and walking to your desk and you see all the people there it's in the morning it's hard every time it's so awkward and strange and there's this feeling like is this my life well I used to work at okay so one of them I used to work at OHSU and I worked in this building it was downtown and a lot of cubicles there and you would always have to wear a collared shirt if you're a guy, um, there's, uh, is like kind of like a stuffy atmosphere. So, um, uh, other people that you would kind of talk to, but, uh, short, brief, kind of pleasant conversations about what one is eating at the moment or coffee or like going, <laughs> can you believe that? Or I know there's so much traffic earlier, really safe stuff. You can't dig deep. My main function was answering phone calls for people who needed help getting into a website where they could uh, pay their bills, talk to their doctor, and look at lab results. And it had problems, and I'd have to like reset passwords. But, you know, and then, you know, looking at like this digital fax queue and then having to move the faxes to other folders and then resending them so they get to the right doctors, you know, just really basic office stuff like that, data entry. A lot of eating at the desk, um, talking about the food, going into the break room, you know, microwaving a thing and then standing next to another person and then acting like they're not there. You're both waiting for your, you know, each there's two microwaves and two people waiting for their meals and you stand right next to each other and the other person doesn't exist. Really strange. Office culture is very sad to me. It feels very sad and very hollow and empty and strange. And I've, and I've said this on stage, but I feel like when you're out of working at a job 40 hours a week 
you're spending a lot of that time pretending that you aren't spending most of your life there, that that isn't your identity, but it's most of your waking life is put in at that place. It is becoming your identity. And there's this strange mutation over time that, you know, slowly makes one from a, a hobbit to a golem. And you want to deny that you're becoming a golem. <laughs> this sounds really offensive to my old coworkers. They're they're really nice, sweet people, but um, you know. I, I remember having a lot of energy when I was really, really young. You know, talking in a bunch of silly voices and you know, doing ridiculous things, but I wasn't doing it to like hurt other people or to be destructive, but it would be very irritating. So I'd be punished for it. And so I internalized this belief that I was bad. Well, you go to middle school and high school and the social dynamic changes and doing that stuff becomes really lame. Also, you can get in a lot more trouble. You can be a lot more accountable, a lot more responsible for those things. So it inverts. So it becomes on the surface a very polite, well-mannered person, and then inside they hate themselves. So that essential disquietude with just the way things are doesn't go away. You just hide it, and you f still feel like you're just an essentially rotten, bad person. So uh, I had been living at my parents' house for a couple months in Virginia doing nothing. Um, they had moved out there for a while. And then I had moved out there in my mid-20s because I was really depressed. So I just lived with my parents for a while. And then uh, I had friends out in Portland. So I moved out here. And then I decided that Portland would be the place where I would start and try stand-up. Because I didn't know a lot of people out here. It seemed like a safe place to be kind of artsy and expressive. I started going to open mics up here just watching them. I was really nervous just going to open mics. I was very afraid just looking at other people doing stand-up live because I think I wanted to do it and the I, the fear of the impending stage time was just, you know, really overwhelming. Um, one time I couldn't even go in to an open mic to watch it. I was too scared. I was too nervous to just go in. Yeah, I started going to open mics. When you're starting out, it's very exciting. It feels very, um, I guess, what, fatalistic or something like that. It's just, uh, you get that feeling of you've finally found your personal renaissance. It was an exciting feeling, even though I wasn't doing so great. And looking back at old notebooks, a lot of the stuff I was talking about was really stupid or boring. Um, you know, but then also here and there, good stuff. Um, so it was pretty fun and also doing showcases here and there around town. Uh, I still do mics, by the way. I'll talk about the Suki's open mic because amongst people who do stand up, that one's a bit infamous. And so it's the, you know, Suki's bar. I don't know if you remember where it is. It's underneath the travel lodge. It's kind of near PSU. It's by the freeway. And it, it, you know, it's got a low ceiling, which is usually good for comedy. And then you're standing there and there's people to the left of you, ahead of you and to the right um, a lot of times at open mics, you have people who didn't know comedy was happening and are sitting there like kind of poking the little black straw into their drink impatiently and staring at you with a glum, expressionless face. Either glum, somewhere between glum and expressionless. Um, 
like like you got to work extra hard to make them happy or something like sometimes it'll just be like this kind of like i don't know like a pointed derision you'll feel sometimes from audience members and and then other people who are really eager for you to do well and then um maybe someone who's very drunk um so it'll be a, a scattered attention spectrum that you're getting from the people around you. Um, there'll be other comics in the back of the room, like far into the right to the back. And then the host is watching. And uh, if you're really bad, um, then he will go somewhere where you can't see him. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't have to look at you and he doesn't have you. He doesn't have to feel you looking at him to see if he's reacting well to what you're saying. Cause what you're saying is probably bad or stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, I think somebody had hung themselves in that room with uh, the cable of a payphone, um, but it wasn't like during a comedy event. But it was brought up during comedy a lot. At Suki's, uh, you know, a friend of mine headbutted this loud audience member in the mouth, um, and uh, another guy got punched in the face for saying something stupid on the mic. And you know, eventually, it's like, uh, I guess, I guess the. <laughs> I don't know what I'm exactly I'm getting at. I'm making it sound really bad because it is. Yeah, the, the experience at an open mic, especially when you're new, you know, three to five minutes, um, it can feel like a very long time. And it's um, it's like a temporary period of drunkenness, like being very drunk, very buzzed, and it feeling kind of good. Like you realize that it felt good afterwards. But when it's happening, it's it's a little traumatic almost. It's kind of like it's it's this uh, it's an intense experience. So it becomes trance like, and you keep willfully putting yourself into that trance state of performing when you're starting out for the first couple years, and you make a sort of religion of it. Uh, people do say that I'm good at it. I did get a lot of attention when I started stand-up, and it went to my head because I wasn't... I can say I wasn't expecting it, but I also kind of was. I had very big... I've always had ego problems my whole life like because I, I knew that I was indulging too much in whatever level of attention I was getting, you know, for being funny, and I felt like there was something... I don't know if this is just the weird shame complex or if this is my um, higher and better self responding to it, but um, that there's something uh, a bit negative about stand-up sometimes or just trying to be funny, that you're taking something from people and they don't know what you're doing with it. Like when you're getting attention from people and you're getting laughs or compliments, once the compliment is in my head... um, and how I'm just salivating over it. When, when somebody gives me a compliment, you don't want to know what I'm doing to your compliment in my head, the tables I'm bending it over, the the ways I'm violating that compliment. Like it feels good and bad at the same time and I don't know what to do with myself. This is a big reason why I can't self-promote. Like pictures of me with a big smile on my face or something like that, it just doesn't, it's not right. It, I mean, it isn't, it isn't true. Um, well, I've been in a relationship 
Um, it was very intense relationship. It was all consuming. Um, uh, really, really sharp ups and downs. Lots of jealousy. Um, and I still have stuff that's carried over from it. For a while, I had nightmares, mild PTSD. Um, I really shouldn't have been microdosing acid before some of us hanging out because we were getting these fights and there are times that we would get in fights and I'd be like, like jealous accusations that wouldn't make sense. And I would feel so cornered. I would end up laying on the floor in a fetal position and it'd be hard to breathe. And that happened a, a number of times. So eventually after like a year and a half of being with this person, I started getting chest pain and nightmares, really intense, very intense and prophetic dreams. So that relationship ended in January of last year. And um, uh, so that was very hard. And I tried to keep going to work for a while, but eventually I couldn't. And I took a leave of absence. I had a, you know, I had a doctor's note for it, pretty much having a nervous breakdown. Um, so I couldn't go to work without, you know, bursting into tears. Um, so I had taken about three months off of work and I went on a road trip with a friend just kind of out of nowhere. We just, you know, after a couple of weeks of planning, we just planned this like 20 day road trip, you know, down to California and it was really good. And then after that, I went to my first Vipassana course. Um, so I'd planned out that first Vipassana course, uh, for me to go to that and then once I got out to transition back into my life and performing again and um, uh, going back to work. Um, well, Vipassana, it's, uh, it's insight meditation. So you're, um, it's supposed to be the technique of meditation that the Buddha was practicing when he became enlightened um, and the way that one has insight isn't just by reading it or hearing about it you experience it and you experience it by taking your attention and applying it to your bodily sensations because your body and your body sensations is where you have lived your entire life and you are training your your attitude and your focus to focus more on the using focus too much, but you are conditioning your mental attitude to be here in the moment with your sensations, with uh, neutrality. Um, your volition is to observe and to not, to not let the intellect meddle with things to say it's really good or say it's really bad because to do that is to immediately start to divide the intellect is like a knife. Anytime you touch it to something, it cuts it in half. You just have to put the knife away, and there's another part of you that can just be with it. And it's a hard thing to learn, so you go to Vipassana, and you have to go to a 10-day course, and it has to be silent because you need to have a very controlled environment to create a good foundation for your mind to uh, be neutral and not react Um <laughs> Uh, you know, and when I say not react, it's the the idea is that we have 
these habit patterns that we've picked up in our uh, in our life, and those habit patterns are running the show. So they're they're taking away our control, and we think that we're in control because we have desires and we go after the desires, and sometimes we get those things that we desire, and. Uh, uh, yeah, maybe I'm going a little too far here in my explanation. I'm still I'm still pretty new in the Vipassana world. I am not an enlightened person, but basically you go there and you can't use your phone, you can't read, you can't write, you don't talk to anyone, you don't make eye contact. It's called noble silence. Um, so somebody's walking by you, you pretty much act like they're not there. You're supposed to be acting like you are a monk for 10 days. You're living the life of a silent monk and the presence of other people is of no consequence. I mean, you're still standing in line to get your breakfast items and things. And if you start to feel nervous or agitated or surly, then you just notice it and then it goes away. So it's a great practice. Even when you're not in the meditation hall the whole time, just to maintain that silence is its own practice. The first day you uh, sit in a meditation hall and you listen to a recording of this guy who sounds like this mysterious frog wizard um Sangonka. he's like it made me feel like i was on mushrooms he was doing like the, like the kind of drippy weird all the boundaries between concepts are dissolving kind of thing it just felt very trippy hearing this guy giving you meditation instructions um Hopefully, I'm not making fun of it too much. It's very wonderful. I shall go on now. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, the first couple of days are very hard. You're just paying attention to the sensation of breath going in and out of your nose, and then the sensations that are starting at the top, the, the bridge of your nose down to the place just above your upper lip, and you're noticing any kind of sensations that arise there. The point is, is because you don't get a lot of sensations in that area, so you sitting for upwards of eight hours a day silently trying to pay attention to that one part of your face is going to get your mind very sharp and it's very difficult and the desire to leave is very strong middle of the fourth day you actually learn the technique of vipassana so you've just been learning you've just been practicing anapana which will uh, calm your mind but it isn't doing what Vipassana does, which is considered like surgery on yourself. You aren't, uh, you aren't yet accessing and dealing with deep-rooted habit patterns of the mind. Vipassana does this. The theory, hopefully, maybe you can correct me here, but that um, your mental habit patterns are making themselves present in your bodily sensations. So after you've gotten your intellect nice and sharp uh, your tools nice and sharpened on the first three and a half days you learn the Vipassana technique you have to notice that you're going through all the different parts of your body all the way down to your feet and it takes about two hours it's so slow you're noticing all the sensations also during this first time I went there are some uh, uh, Chinese students so after the recording would give us the instruction it would switch over to uh, someone in Chinese translating it. So we'd have to listen to the same thing. And I didn't understand what he was saying. This is all in Cantonese. And so it was almost twice as long. It was so hard. It was so hard. I was shaking in pain. And then when 
um, the recording said, this is change. This is reality. This is a Nietzsche. And I was shaking. He started to chant. And when he started to chant, I had this series of memories start flashing behind my eyes. My whole body was shaking and I was tears were running down my face. My face went numb. And as I was shaking, the images were coming that were coming. There was a lot of memories that I had forgotten. Um, I also had this image of the skeleton figure from the 13th Arcanum of the tarot in front of me. And it said, sorry, bud. Cause I kept saying in my head in the days leading up, sorry, bud. Every time I wanted to bolt and leave, I would just go, sorry, bud, got to stick around. That's how, that's just what I'd say to myself in my head. So the skeleton thing said to me, sorry, bud. And it started cutting into me with its scythe. And I was shaking and feeling like I was being cut apart by it. And I had this memory of me holding a picture of me standing next to my grandpa who's died. And we had the same birthday and we were kind of similar. I was holding a picture of my grandfather. And then I was at that moment when the picture was taken and then I was at his funeral holding his casket. Um, like these things just went by. Like it was a like an end of a movie. And it was all being cut into this interesting montage. And um, after that happened, and then we were allowed to relax, I just fell down and I was crying. And nobody else was in the meditation hall. And I lifted my head up and I looked out of the blanket. And the assistant teacher was just looking at me. Of course, a very blank, very Buddhist expression. <laughs> I asked him later, what was that? And he said, oh, you went through a storm. <laughs> That's it. That's how they are to this stuff. No matter how big and extreme your mental thing is, you're supposed to just react to that also with neutrality. It really taught me that um, there's a danger in trying to chase after catharsis. Trying to have the big experience is going to kill you. Uh it's this is the big experience you're in it just relax and enjoy it <laughs> don't it isn't somewhere else um uh so and and then the other days after it i would have some sits that would be great and then other ones that would be really hard lots of anger um like i can't pay attention like i'm supposed to be scanning sensations on my body starting from the very top of my head all the way down to the tips of my toes and then back up to the top of my head and sometimes both arms at the same time and just supposed to be neutrally scanning but I'm not because I'm having an argument with somebody in my head I'm I'm mad at something I did I'm thinking of something embarrassing and stupid I did five years ago and I am really and it feels like the, the horror of it is that I feel like that this feeling is never going to go away that this is just how I am and I'm scum but there's also sometimes when those things are coming up and I'm like shaking I'm angry and I, I can't focus on the sensations or even if I'm just having a pleasurable daydream about something you know about how great and interesting I am um, that is a, not a good sit because I'm not paying attention to sensations of my body with neutrality um which you know i don't you know i don't want to make a religion out of body sensations but there's this idea that keeps coming to me it's like why should it be so hard to just sit with your eyes closed why is that a hard thing and 
yeah, the fact that it's so hard for almost everyone is really profound. It's profound that it's profound. Why should that be profound? It seems like a normal thing. It's like Bob went and sat in a chair for two hours and did nothing. That seems like a normal thing. That never happened. Bob never does that. Bob looks at his phone for two hours. But yeah, my my really hard sits would be where I'm distracted and very angry. A lot of anger. Uh, a lot of self-righteous anger. A lot of feeling hurt. I mean, I, I, I'd gone through a lot of painful stuff very recently. So um, that stuff was coming up. So even though I'm sitting in this silent meditation hall, what's going on in my head is very loud. And it... Uh, it's 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 just hard. I don't know how else to say it. The way it would resolve itself, and it has to happen a couple times till I notice it, and this is a part of the wisdom that you get, I think, from the practice, little bits you, you get, little wisdom pellets you get, is that you get to a point where you're like, I'm impossible. I can't be fixed. I'm And your head is burning and you're like, this is just not going to work. This isn't for me, but I'm stuck here. So I just got to wait this get out. <laughs> you have to bleep twice there. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm just going to have to wait this thing out. And then what I wouldn't notice is that in that moment, I just made, I just had a pretty good, uh, uh leap of success with resolve. I didn't realize the amount of resolve that I just, I'm not giving myself credit at all or anything like anyways, the, the, the big self hating moment. And it feels like you've hit the end of the line into the book. I am a piece of garbage case closed. That 